Spirituality Challenged is a podcast recorded on Canadian Treaty 1 territory, and that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Diné people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 41st Nation, which is located on Treaty 3 territory. Spirituality Challenged respects the spirit and intent of treaties and treaty making and are open to future partnerships with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in the spirit of truth, reconciliation, and collaboration. This is going to be a different episode, and this is one where I want to share one of my intense interests with you, dear listener. I love electronic music, particularly house, disco, acid, and rave breakbeats. In the early 90s, my dad gave me my first stereo system for my birthday. It had a small microphone port, a white and red auxiliary thing in the back, and it came with a four-band EQ with bass enhancement. Sometimes when I couldn't get to sleep at night right away, I'd listen to the radio. And sometimes, those nights turned into half-nighters. Because after 10pm on Q94FM back in the day, You don't get to hear rock and roll or typical top 40 hits. You heard this. This is an ex-evangelical deconstruction show that probably does need a little bit of lighter content every so often. So today, we're going to cover 90s Christian music. But not gospel, praise and worship, or Skillet, or Supertones, or Amy Grant, DC Talk, or Jars of Clay. No, we're going to take a cool but quick look into something that flew under my radar that I wish I had experienced before the internet archived it and my faith in evangelicalism was gone. The Christian techno scene. Welcome to Spirituality Challenge, dear listener. I am your DJ, er, uh, host, Aaron Parsons. On this podcast, we uncover the rarely discussed history and exposed sources behind controversial, but in this case, interesting, Christian ideologies while speaking truth to power. We try to cover as much ground as possible in one topic in each episode, so sit back and prepare to... So in the movie Mean Girls, there's this character who kept trying to unsuccessfully popularize her own slang. It's kind of what evangelicals did with music when it was the 90s. They tried to create their own versions of pop music. DC Talk hit it big with Jesus Freak and Newsboys gave us Love Liberty Disco. All these were an obvious capitalization of the popularity of alternative music. But how were they able to do so? Christian bookstores. I live in Canada, so to be perfectly honest, I don't know where Christians get their books or music or Odyssey videos in the States. But for the dear listener that's here in Winnipeg with me, but never walked into such an establishment, that place was Hall's Bookstore near the intersection of Graham and Carlton. Back in the day, Christian churches were trying to find a way to reach unsaved teenagers. 
They didn't like the idea of kids getting into Mad Magazine, Gangstar, Beavis and Butthead, Mortal Kombat, or watching movies like Cruel Intentions. So they tried to be hip by creating alternative music, movies, TV series, and even t-shirts that tried to keep kids from sex, drugs, drinking, and becoming wannabe rappers. And that cheesy media got me hooked. I would take a bus out to halls to get my alternative hip-hop, whether it be John Rubin, BBJ, or Soup the Chemist. They had the $5-$10 to $10 tapes for my cheap $20 Walkman back then as well. One day at a garage sale last fall, I was looking through some CDs on sale and found one with the cover of two guys that looked like two Unlimited Rejects. Since I'm a sucker for independent release music on Bandcamp, I thought I'd give the Christian rave music duo Prodigal Sons a try. I mean, techno is instrumental music, right? Like most Christian artists and youth pastors who try very hard to be relevant to their target audience, these techno artists give a couple of their tracks odd sanctified names fused with typical rave lingo, Revival and 303 Wiseman. This track playing is Revival. They also had tracks named Godhead and Cross the Jordan. Their music is a blend of LA style, Malcolm McLaren, Yuzo Kashiri's Streets of Rage soundtrack, The Prodigy, and other wild tracks from the 90s UK rave music scene. And it actually sounds really good. That is, until you get to this bit. You're a Christian, yeah. and you're a raven, yeah. but you don't do drugs, no. you don't do anything immoral. No. Unfortunately now, when I try to listen to any holy music again, the messaging and the preachiness just comes across as either brain-teasing and cheesy at best, or absolutely cringe at worst. Prodigal Sons was a techno duo like Daft Punk who experienced the techno scene and decided to bring that music to their Republican neighborhood in Texas. Eventually, they were able to sell two albums in Christian music stores, but they soon disbanded after that. So how did this happen? Why didn't Christian techno really take off like I wish it did back then? And are there actually any more well-known Christian music that falls into the categories of house, techno, trance, disco, drum and bass, IDM, GUA, or even dark EBM? Now these are all good questions, but we need to narrow down a lot of information in order to get some answers behind this. So I dug through the many histories of Italo Disco, the burning of actual disco records in the 70s, hip-hop, braindance, avant-garde, and even went as far back as WDR Cologne's studio for electronic music back in the 1950s. But I had to go back just a little bit further. And this led me to someone named Wendy Carlos. Wendy was born in 1939 on Rhode Island on the American East Coast. She began taking piano lessons at the age of six. Because this was the Depression, her father drew a keyboard on a piece of paper for her to practice on between piano lessons. Because she couldn't afford to buy her own piano back then, and it was also wartime, she started composing her own music in the 1950s. 
and in the next four years, she took an interest in electronics and engineering, which led her to start building a keyboard using wood and soldering iron, and in 1953, with her grit and passion for music and typing, Wendy won a science competition with a computer she had built from scratch. Wendy went on to study music and physics at Brown University, and then eventually transferred to Columbia University to do her master's degree. While studying for her master's, Wendy met Robert Moog, who eventually became the inventor of the Moog synthesizer. Wendy and Robert worked together to perfect the design and sounds of the synth, and eventually found a market of musicians to sell it to. In time, the dynamic music duo added features such as filter banks and a controller that would allow the musical note pitches to slide up and down. The Moog synthesizer's first sales began in 1964, which helped with Wendy's master's degree in music in 1965. The design of the Moog eventually became more compact, and Robert came up with the portable Mini Moog in the 1970s. I guess you could say Wendy and Robert were the very first chiptune artists. Wendy had a Moog of her own in 1966. She used it to compose tracks and electronic sound effects for TV commercials, but still composed her own music as a hobby. She composed Switched on Bach, which reached number 10 on the US Billboard 200 chart and remained at the top of the Billboard Classical Albums chart for three years. She went on to win three Grammy Awards for the album, as in Best Classic Album, Best Classical Performance, and Best Engineered Classical Recording. She also made history, as the Moog synthesizer was used in music by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, ABBA, and most famously on Donna Summer's disco hit I Feel Love in 1977. She also took various film composer jobs, writing music for Clockwork Orange and Disney's original Tron in 1982. Wendy continues to compose music today and enjoys a very private life. And there's probably a big reason for this. Because all this time, I'm not sure if I've been using correct pronouns in reference to Wendy. Because the truth is, wait for it, that Wendy Carlos, one of the very first electronic musicians, is trans. This got me thinking, what is the connection here, dear listener? Because thinking about it, there's a certain standard for Christians creating art. But what is it? There must have been a big reason why for a long time, Christian music never had electronic guitars, a bass, or drums. There must have been a big reason why many churches today still use an organ, only have choirs, or why some churches even now use only string instruments and people singing. While trying to put some pieces together, I remember something interesting while visiting Filipino family in Vancouver. A few days before traveling back to Winnipeg after having a great vacation on the West Coast, I was invited to an interesting event. One of my third cousins decided to invite my wife and I to party with her at a series of events called the Public Disco, which is a bunch of pop-up parties that transform alleys, streets, and plazas of the mountainous metropolis into immersed dance floor environments for neighbors and strangers to gather and connect through groove and house music. 
I was excited and intrigued, but we already had plans in place to visit Lynn Canyon and its suspension bridge in North Vancouver. So I decided to look into it after I got back to Winnipeg. This led me down another rabbit hole into the British Columbia's Vancouver groundwork electronic music scene. And boy did they have some great talent out there, from Roman Candle, Abassi, Casey Riot, Diana Boss, <laughs> get it, and my personal favorite, Joel West. Eventually, when looking at the publicdisco.ca website, I clicked on their about page, which gave me a much better understanding of why there was no Christian rave or techno scene. Here's the text that's in their inspiration section. While dance music has surely evolved, it's important to remember where it comes from. Electronic music stems from a struggle for space and acceptance. Led by black, queer, and trans individuals in the late 60s and early 70s, discotheques emerged as safe havens for marginalized groups to connect and express themselves without fear of persecution. These spaces began as private members-only clubs, but over time, the counterculture made its way out of the underground, influencing mainstream culture and paving the way for the development of house, techno, and other forms of modern dance music that we know and love today. Public Disco aims to honor this history by creating spaces that celebrate queer identity, encourage vibrant self-expression, showcase artists from diverse backgrounds, and provide opportunities for the public to let loose and have some fun. While the format of our events is different from the discotheques of yesterday, its core elements of love, happiness, self-expression, and acceptance shine bright in everything we do. As soon as I read that, this mysterious puzzle of defunct holy techno started to form a complete picture. But before piecing everything together, I'd like to revisit another memory from 2009. After I moved to the small town of Brandon, Manitoba, I found myself in Bethel Church, where I participated in a revival service a year ago, as outlined in a previous episode. Looking back, I discovered it was heavy into gender roles in purity culture. While I was attending church there and going to college, I found out that an indie artist was spinning a house DJ set. I wanted to go dance the night away so badly, but none of the friends I made there wanted to go because to them, the music in the venue was filled with gay people and gay products for sale, and they do gay things. And yet the young adult group I was part of, they loved other indie bands. They loved Christian rap, even rap with electronic music elements. And they loved rock, and some listened to Deadmau5 and early Skrillex music from 2010. The gender ideologies on the venue, DJs, or people attending, that didn't bother me at all. I just wanted to enjoy some good music with friends. So back to putting the puzzle together. In the 1980s, Italo Disco became an underground sensation in Europe, which led to Chicago and Detroit underground acid in the late 80s and 90s. Rumors spread of drugs, pot, and random sex acts happening in warehouses during the satanic panic years. The drug portion is kinda true to an extent, so always make sure not to ingest anything while attending these events. These rumors of the underground party scene somehow got into mainstream discourse for a brief time, and because of the reputation that electronic music got back in the day, 
Mostly because a lot of taboo subjects were forced deep into a cloud of censorship, a ton of Christians had no idea what electronic music really was. So, of course, when I shared my love for Hathaway's What Is Love Baby Don't Hurt Me No More, everyone looked at me like I was an alien instead of asking me what kind of drugs I was taking at the Roxbury. In a recent conversation with an online friend, he mentioned that when word got around his church about this thing called Psytrance, there was a sermon indicating that the trance-like state that techno plays with is considered unsafe and even demonic. And perhaps it would be unsafe by CCM industry standards as well. But in the 90s, I was a boy who lived in central Canada and not Toronto, Montreal or Vancouver. I didn't know that much. I was just a carefree suburban kid in a farming province with my radio, listening to a taste of culture that I wish I grew up with. I even loved listening to some edited radio mainstream rock while drawing cartoons, and I loved losing sleep while waiting for MC Mario to spin stuff by Daisy D or Jesse Lee Davis or a remix of I'm Every Woman by Whitney Houston. Before I read that section of the public disco website, the fact there was marginalization as part of a music genre's identity, it never crossed my mind. If I were to ask deconstructed former Hall staffers if Christian electronic music was a thing, they would never know. But apparently there was an official record label dedicated to Christian rave music called Ensoul, found by ex-raver Scott Blackwell. He started a business with two executives, William Middlebrook and Philip Kim, who unfortunately couldn't get the music out very far in the evangelical world. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much information about whether or not the label still exists today, and their social media is pretty much automated. Although, what one ex-Hall staffer told me was that early CCM's basic operation revolved around two things. Jesus one-on-one -on -one theology. In other words, you're not allowed to get too deep with your lyrics for fear of offending some denomination or another. There was one example where an entire album's lyrics were rewritten for this reason. The second thing was about imitating secular culture. Between bad t-shirts and slogans, alternative Christian media attempted to mimic secular trends but in a holy way, and most of the time, they did it badly. Looking back at all this, Christians trying to be hip seemed like a Frankenstein experiment. And in the long run, many teens in Christian homes just weren't buying what they were selling. So here's what eventually happened with the alternative Christian music scene. The Seven Mountains Mandate of the New Apostolic Reformation partially conquered a subsection of the Media Mountain, metaphorically speaking, of course. In other words, Christianity tried to be hip, and when it failed, Nashville, IHOP Kansas, Hillsong, and Elevation Worship, they eventually dominated the genre of Christian contemporary music with praise and worship while Christians and the far right took over the secular country airwaves. Really talented Christian rock stars started getting signed by secular labels. Think of P.O.D. and Red. Project 86 went completely independent 
Christian rap labels fizzled out and the only place to get your holy hip-hop was the website Rapzilla. Fresh IE's rap became a blend of gnar praise and worship with very preachy tracks about how dark the streets of Winnipeg truly are, and bands like Under Oath completely split because of the hypocritical corruption that happened behind the Christian scene. At least that's how Aaron Gillespie puts it on the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. While Christian music in the 90s had a good run of success, since KJ52 and Skillet are still touring today, the Christian techno scene didn't really become a thing. And it wasn't just because of the lack of knowledge or the fear of checking out the Kendall Calling Festival in the UK. And obviously, one reason was because a lot of techno tracks didn't have any lead vocals on top. And Christians loved their Jesus is King vocals in their music. More Christian music listeners and CCM labels today, they demanded that all signed musicians ensure all tracks have knees bowing and tongues confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christian music had to be Christian music. There was no more music that Christians made discussing life struggles of believers or hype rap anthems by Christians who rap but don't swear in their lyrics. Notice what I'm getting at here when I talk about the difference between Christian rappers versus Christians who rap. The music was either worship or sermons in the music, or be independent Christians who write secular music. And this keeps going on today. Christians who last long enough in media try to douse anything they touch in holy water and make it quote unquote safe for their communities. But in the end, the video, the music, the t-shirt, or even Jesus-focused video game just becomes generic and boring, with two or three good qualities that stand out at best. There was even a time when there were worship remixes and disco with sermon samples in their tracks in the early 2000s. I had a worship techno CD around that time. I only listened to one track repeatedly, and the rest was terrible. But for me, that's not the only reason I listen to music in general. While a lot of the music I listen to is instrumental because I love various types of folly and blip bloopy sounds, I listen to different genres of music and not just rock to understand where people are coming from. The thing about music is it shows me things about the world that I never knew about. Because I was a sheltered kid who grew up in a Christian home living in a white city. Music allows me to see the world in a whole different light and angle. And it helps me to think for myself. In a way, because I was a lonely person due to autism, music was like a best friend to me. And it's always given me a deeper relationship, just like my connection with God that I thought was real back in the day before becoming agnostic. As soon as I figured out that a lot of disco, house, dubstep, and even synthwave music was composed by people of color, individuals with a spectrum of genders, and neurodivergent folks who just didn't fit in anywhere like myself, I had a much deeper appreciation for the music I enjoyed when I was up in my room, alone at night, bopping my head to bass bumpers. And here, the autistic part of me that points out obvious elephants in the room is going to come out, so bear with me. To me, electronic music 
has a solid foundation that was built by struggle, blood, sweat, tears, a need to belong, and deep yearnings for new and exciting sounds to meet while expanding community and looking to help the outcast belong. Its origins came from a need to explore outside the box rather than to use power to keep someone or something weaker for misappropriation inside a box. Maybe it's best for everyone that the contemporary Christian music scene never took on EDM. I guess the factoid that both Christians and secular folks can agree with is that electronic music can't be colonized by any system of whiteness. And it definitely cannot be corrupted by Christian nationalists. Electronic music is the ultimate genre for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the outcast. And one day, I hope to get the hell out of Winnipeg and meet more people who love this genre as passionately as I do, so we can dance as outcasts together. And that, dear listener, is why I'm a ride-or-die electronic music fan. <laughs> 